The title of this morning's message is The Quote-Unquote Kid with the Crown of Thorns. This morning we're going to look at the innocent king who hung on a cross, who was declared guilty of the crimes of blasphemy and treason. Why would this innocent king allow himself to die in such a fashion? I believe you will see it is because he is the kid, as well as the king, who was crowned with thorns. The last time I ministered, we looked at Jesus as our Passover land, our crowned sacrifice. The title of that message was The King in Sheep's Clothing. But this time I want us to see Jesus as the king who is also a kid. And by kid, I do not mean a child, I mean a goat. However, I do like the pun. He is God's kid. <laughs> he is the one and only. <laughs> now, you may never have heard or thought of the symbolism of a goat being used in regards to Christ. But Jesus actually fulfills all of the types of sacrifices in the Old Testament. And the symbolism is in reference particularly to Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the holiest day on the Jewish calendar. It's also known as the Day of Atonement. And on that day, two goats are sacrificed as one offering for the sin of Israel. Now, what happened was, when I went looking for information on Jesus as our Passover, I ran into a lot of Jewish scholars because I want to know how the Jews understand. Obviously, they're usually a little better at understanding the Old Testament rituals than we are. We miss a lot of stuff because we don't understand the Old Testament. But I ran into Jewish scholars, even pastors who used to be evangelical and went back into Judaism, forsook Christ and went into Judaism, and how they understand the scripture. And what I found is that they were denouncing Christ, Jesus, as the Passover lamb and our Savior on the technicality that he is called the Passover lamb. Because the Passover was not a sacrifice for sin. So they say that the Christians are banking their bucks, if you will, on the fact that Jesus is the Passover. Passover was not an offering for sin. And he's right. The Passover is actually considered a peace offering. The Passover for the Jews is an offering wherein the worshiper and God are considered to have communion one with another because as they commemorate what God did for them in bringing them out of Egypt and out of slavery, they get to participate in partaking of the offering itself. It isn't devoted wholly unto God, it's shared. The picture God is painting was communion and fellowship. Now that of course also foreshadows the ceremony wherein Christ on Passover instituted communion as a memorial for us, not of the original Passover, but of the New Covenant, where he becomes our Passover. So we recognize that the first Passover was also prior to the law. You see, there was no sacrifices prior to the first Passover. All of the sacrifices actually came out of the one, because <laughs> that one brought them a complete and total deliverance. And that's why we reference Christ as our Passover, because he brings us a complete and total deliverance. One of the biggest objections that Jewish scholars have to the blood of Jesus being able to bring remission of sins is the fact that he is identified as a lamb instead of a goat. Because on Yom Kippur, 
the most holiest day of the year, the day when all sins are erased, the offering was a goat, not a lamb. Now I have to say this, goats are not demonic. Now you may think, think that's a silly thing to say, but you would be surprised because of Greek mythology and, and devil worship, people have a tendency to think that a simple goat has a demonic inference. It does not, not in scripture. Okay, in paganism, yes. In scripture, no. Goats are just goats. <laughs> now, all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, regardless of which one we pick, they actually always point to Christ. And they are fuzzy pictures. We have to remember that what they had was a fuzzy picture, a shadow. They didn't have the reality and the substance. So to take Jesus and try to make him fit into a fuzzy picture, you're going to lose, not gain. So we always have to, when we look at the Old Testament, say, okay, this is pointing me to a greater reality. Jesus isn't going to fit exactly in the Old Testament. Why? Because he's greater. He's too big <laughs> to fit in the shadows. But God put those shadows there so that we could look there and go, oh, I can see what he was trying to say. I can see what he was trying to do because he knows we are people of pictures. And if we can get a picture of something, then we can wrap our mind around it. Jesus was a storyteller. Why? Because he knows if I'm going to get a truth in you, I can do that with a picture. And so all of those sacrifices were pictures pointing to the greater reality who is Christ. Jesus as the land that takes away the sin of the world, is particularly well foreshadowed. Not in the Passover lamb, but in the daily sacrifices at the temple. There were two sacrifices for sin for the nation of Israel every day, every morning and every evening. At 9 a.m., a lamb was slain for the sin of Israel. At 3 p.m., a lamb was slain for the sin of Israel. Now, what I want you to see in that is that this is not for a single person. This is for a group of specific people. God said, y'all are not good at keeping the law. <laughs> and you sin, whether you know it or not. So you need some sacrifices here. <laughs> so Jesus is the daily sacrifice. You see, they needed to be under the blood continuously. The one that the Jews would pick if they were going to pick Jesus, would be the daily offering. Jesus is, I do like this, Jesus is the beginning and the end, is he not? He is the beginning sacrifice and he is the ending sacrifice. You see, there was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world, and his name is Jesus. That lamb is the first lamb, and when he died on that cross, he was the last lamb. He is the first and he is the last. He is the morning and he is the evening. He is all the sacrifice that we need. And his sacrifice is the only effective sacrifice. All the other ones were just credit cards, <laughs> looking forward to a day that the debt would be paid. Now, Jesus does, in fact, fulfill the shadows made by the sacrifices on the most holiest of Jewish days, the Day of Atonement. Even though Jesus is the Lamb of God in the New Testament, he also fulfills and satisfies the types of the two goats that were sacrificed on Yom Kippur. Now you might be thinking, how do we turn a lamb into a goat? <laughs> Especially when we're talking about a Passover lamb. Well, it might surprise you 
that the Passover lamb didn't actually have to be a lamb. If we look in Exodus chapter 12, verses 3 through 6, we find these words. God speaking to Moses. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. You were allowed 10 to 12 people per lamb or per sacrifice, according to what each can eat and that you shall make count of for that lamb. One of the things that you had to do for this offering is you had to eat it all. <laughs> That's why you could only have a certain amount of people for a lamb. And you were required to be full. You were not allowed to be hungry. When you partook of this sacrifice, you had to come away satisfied. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of a year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now, does that make sense to you? You take a lamb, <laughs> but it has to come from either sheep or goats. Now, see, to us, when we think lamb, we think sheep. In our vocabulary, lamb only means sheep. That's not what it meant to them. This word lamb is a generic term for a small, four-footed, clean animal that dwells in flocks and herds. Goats and sheep. <laughs> but it was a generic term. Lamb didn't mean just a sheep. So, and it goes on and says, you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month because he wants you to fall in love with your little critter that you bring into your house. <laughs> and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. He wanted them to fall in love with their sheep, their offering, their lamb, because they wanted them to identify with their offering, which was always required. Now the instructions go on to tell us how they were to place the blood of the offering on the lintel and the doorposts of their house. Every house had to have the blood of the lamb or the blood of the kid on the lintel and the doorpost. And then the, the angel of death would pass over. And it was because of this final plague that God was able to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt and out of bondage. What I've always loved about that story is that they were making a bloody cross over their doorpost, over their house. They had blood at the base of the door, and they would put, take their, their hyssop, and they would put it on their reed and on the top, dip. On the side, dip. And on the other side. So they were always making a sign of a cross. It was a bloody cross that saved Israel. That's the picture God was painting even then. God paints pictures. So Jesus, as our Passover lamb, could be correctly identified as our Passover goat our Passover kid. <laughs> and it would be appropriate and not blasphemous. Because to the Christian religious ear, calling Jesus a goat sounds a tad blasphemous because of all the paganism that we're used to. But it is not. Now, again, we always look to the first Passover and not to the law. We look to the picture and not to the ceremony. The point isn't what animal was sacrificed. The point was that God accepted that sacrifice, and judgment passed over them. That is the perfect picture of what our Jesus has done for us. God completely delivered them from their enemies and from slavery. Again, a perfect fuzzy picture <laughs> of what Jesus would do for us. And it didn't matter if it was a baby goat or a baby sheep. <laughs> the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says this, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. I love this scripture 
<laughs> because he's saying, look, you are not full of sin. Don't act like you are. <laughs> he says, you are unleavened. You are without sin. Be who you are. <laughs> for even Christ is our Passover, is sacrifice for us. It doesn't say lamb, and it doesn't say kid. The point is, it's the sacrifice that brought a complete and total deliverance. Jesus' sacrifice as our Passover delivered us from our spiritual Egyptians, all of the power of darkness, and our spiritual Pharaoh, Satan, and our spiritual slavery, sin. Jesus is our Passover, whether he's a lamb or a kid. He is still our complete and total sacrifice. Now, the reason I wanted to make this connection that the type of animal was not really important is so that we can make the point that Jesus' sacrifice is also represented by the goats on the Day of Atonement. Jesus' sacrifice does deal with sin, even more so than the goats of Yom Kippur. So God told Moses how the sacrifices of the Day of Atonement were to be done. And we find those instructions in Leviticus chapter 16. I'll start reading in verse 5. And he, the high priest, shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself in his house. Jesus, as our high priest, did not need to do this because he was sinless. And he shall take two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Now, what they have is the high priest, and for this day, for these particular rituals, he had to lose all of his fancy garb. He had to be down in just plain white linen. He had to look like every other man. <laughs> Sound familiar? <laughs> and what he would do is he would come to present the goats. They had to be inspected, just like any other sacrifice. And there would be a golden bowl of some sort. And inside would be two rocks, one black and one white. The one that was white would say for Yahweh. And that is the, the sacrifice that would have its life taken and its blood poured out. And then that blood would be put on the mercy seat. The other one would say for Azazel. Now, some translations of the Bible make that look like a proper name. And they try to say that that is for Satan. Wrong. <laughs> wrong, wrong, wrong. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> it actually means for the goat that escapes. Okay, that's the literal translation. For the goat that escapes. That's why the Bible translators actually made up this word called scapegoat. <laughs> scapegoat isn't really a great term to identify Christ. I understand why they use it. Somebody who's innocent who takes all the blame. So we get the picture. But that wasn't the picture God was trying to paint here. God was trying to paint a picture that the goat got to go free. That was the point. That was the picture he wanted to paint, that the goat goes free. And so, and it goes on. And when he hath made an end to the reconciliation of the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Jesus did all this after he died. He went into heaven and he placed the blood in the most holy place and everything in heaven was cleansed by the blood of Christ. So we see all the pictures there. They're just not necessarily in the same order. <laughs> it goes on and says, And Aaron shall lay both of his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all of their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away 
by a hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goats shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto the land not inhabited. He shall let the goat go in the wilderness. Now this is a very different picture of a sin sacrifice than the one we're used to. First of all, there's two animals instead of one. One dies and one goes free. And oddly enough, it's the innocent one that gives its life. And it is the guilty one that goes free. Now, most of the time, we're more comfortable with the personal sacrifice, where the worshiper would lay their hands on their little lamb or their little goat, (laughs) and they would confess their sins, and the sins of the human would be transferred to the innocent animal, and the innocence of the animal would be transferred to the worshiper, and the guilty party would die, and justice would be done. That's the one we're most used to. But in this one, it is the innocent that dies and the guilty that goes free. So Yom Kippur is very different than what we're used to. So why are there two animals? What does it represent? And what is the picture God's trying to paint? Well, first of all, you have to understand what was the purpose of the Day of Atonement. God said the purpose of the Day of Atonement was to give Israel, all of Israel, a clean slate. They looked forward to this day more than any other day. It is the holiest day for them. It is like Good Friday for us. <laughs> it is the holiest day for them and the most joyous because after their rituals, they could rejoice in knowing all of my sins are forgiven. They only got to do this once a year. <laughs> now, under the law, the Israelites could only be forgiven for unintentional sins. I got this from a Jewish scholar. I had to check it out to make sure I understood this correctly. (laughs) They could only be forgiven for the unintentional sins. There was no sacrifice for intentional sin, and only the unintentional sins committed against God could have a sacrifice. So sins committed against people were considered your own responsibility. You had to atone for your own sins that you committed against people. So what the Jews have till this day is prior to the Day of Atonement, they have what's called the Ten Days of Awe. And they spend ten days trying to make everything right that has been wrong in the past year. Because this only worked from year to year. Okay, so for ten days, they're calling everybody they have a problem with. (laughs) They're trying to make restitution, make reconciliation, because their sins are counted against them until they do enough to make atonement. So what would happen prior to the Day of Atonement is everyone prays and fasts and attempts to make reconciliation. The idea is if you repent sufficiently. You see, it isn't one sacrifice does everything. You have to be really sorry. You have to be really repentant. You have to be fasting. You have to be afflicting yourself appropriately. Now what was so great about this Day of Atonement is that if they repented sufficiently, You see, that repentance was still necessary. You still have to spend that 10 days preparing for the sacrifice. Sort of like how we used to do communion. Look inward. Do you have any sin? Make right whatever is wrong. Work really hard. Be really sorry. Make yourself worthy to receive the sacrifice. That was their mindset. And if, if you have been sufficiently repentant, then on the Day of Atonement, God would forgive all of your sins. And he would write their name in the book of life for one year. For one year. (laughs) 
<laughs> but if you had not appropriately afflicted yourself in the proportion of your sins, God would write your name in the book of death, which would include suffering. And they really never knew which book they were written in. Sound like modern Christianity to you? <laughs> you see, they thought if they had not afflicted themselves sufficiently, God would bring the appropriate affliction in the coming year, which might include death. And then your death might be able to atone for your sins. You see how sketchy all of this is? <laughs> you see, this is very much like the modern church today trying to afflict themselves in proportion to how we as a body see ourselves, we see our sins, and we try to make up for what we've done. The modern church keeps itself in a state of being really sorry in hopes that God will have mercy on us and not send suffering into our life as punishment. I know this is true because this was me. This is how I lived my life. And I still do. I still fall into those old mindsets. Oh, man, I missed it, God. <laughs> And you feel horrible for days. <laughs> it's really, I'm really sorry. And you try to make yourself sorry enough for God to let you off the hook. And God's already let me off the hook. I just have to appropriate the grace by faith. Appropriate a clean conscience. Yes, it is appropriate to confess our sin. Yes, it is appropriate to be sorry for our sin. But punishing ourselves will never atone for our sin. And so he says, come and get cleansed. Let the blood of Jesus wash your, your conscience. Understand that you are forgiven. Enter into the love. Enter into the grace. And that way, you're not going to follow after the way of sin. The Israelites looked forward to this day of atonement because it was believed that this day was so special and unlike any other day that if you had really repented and been really sorry and really afflicted yourself, that even your unintentional sins could be forgiven. And then some of the rabbis said, this day is so great, this day is so awesome, God's mercy and compassion is so available on this one day that even unrepented sins could be forgiven. How about that? <laughs> it was the day that all of Israel looked forward to because it was the day that God put all of Israel right with himself. And to this day, the Jews believe that Yom Kippur is the day that Israel is set right in relation to him for the coming year, for one year. <laughs> but the truth is, they have no assurance because they have no sacrifice. To this day, they go to church five times, to synagogue five times on Yom Kippur. Prayers and fasting, it's a day of complete fast, 25 hours of no food and no water to afflict their souls, to make atonement for sin. And yet when they leave that synagogue that day, they have no assurance that God has heard their prayers. None. But way back when, God wanted them to have assurance. The same way God wants us to have assurance. You see, you need a sacrifice. <laughs> you need something outside of yourself. <laughs> outside of what you can do. They merely hope that what they've done is sufficient to grant them life for another year. They're merely hoping that their self-righteousness and their works and their repentance is enough to merit God's mercy. And that's why there's two goats. God wanted them to have the assurance that he found their offering acceptable and that he found them acceptable. That's why there's two goats. Once they had the assurance, then they could rejoice. Then they could rest in the knowledge that God would let them live in blessing and favor 
instead of in fear of punishment. Now, according to traditional writings, not according to the scripture, according to what the Jews themselves have written, they wanted to help God with the assurance problem. The picture is that the innocent goat gives its life and covers their sin in the Holy of Holies. And then the guilt, the sin itself, is put on the goat that goes into the wilderness. So the picture was that God wanted them to see, look, your sins are far from you. See, I'm removing your sins far from you. (laughs) I want you to know on this day, my compassion is that great. My love is that wonderful. I want to wipe the entire slate clean, and I want you to know it. I'm going to give you a picture, because only the high priest, once a year, went into the Holy of Holies and saw the blood applied to the mercy seat. He's the only one that saw that. But he wanted all of Israel to see. Their sins are far from them. (laughs) And they get to go free. That was the picture. But you know what? That really wasn't enough of a picture. One day, that goat came back. <laughs> and they're like, oh no! <laughs> this is a true story. So they changed the way they did things. They started escorting the goat, not just into the wilderness to go free, but to a cliff to fall off. <laughs> they wanted to make sure their sins were not coming back. <laughs> That's actually a true story. That actually is what they would do. There was a high priest who was so faithful and so right in his relationship with God. He would tie a crimson piece of cloth to himself when he would go to do the sacrifice for Yom Kippur. And he would go and do all he was prescribed to do, go and apply the blood, and the crimson's ribbon, I'll call it that, on his body would turn white. See, he had confidence. (sighs) Our sins are, but it was only him. (laughs) He's the only one with confidence that the sins are far from them. (laughs) So what they started doing is they started applying a crimson-colored piece of cloth to the goat that went into the wilderness and to the goat that was to be slain. And according to them, when the goat was slain, the cloth would turn white. And when the goat went out into the wilderness, when that goat was slain, that ribbon would also turn white. And then the man would come back and testify. It turned white. We are okay with God. God accept us. We can expect blessing and favor for the coming year. They had assurance. Even though God did not institute this extra, (laughs) this extra help, God still met them where their faith was. He is good and he is compassion. He wants you to know your sins are far from you and they're not coming back. (laughs) Now, this actually happened consistently throughout the era of the Second Temple. Every year, the crimson cloth would always turn white. Okay? Until about AD 30. The last 40 years before the temple was destroyed, It never turned white. Not once. Now, there were other miraculous signs, again, according to their own records. All kinds of happenings in the temple indicating something had changed. But this sign in particular indicated to them that their sin sacrifices were no longer acceptable. Something changed in A.D. 30. Hmm, what could that have been? (laughs) Could it be that there was a greater 
sin offering? A sin offering unlike any other sin offering? I believe so. And I believe that is Jesus, our sin offering, who completely fulfilled the requirements of Yom Kippur. He came to bring substance and reality to what the Old Covenant offerings only could foreshadow. Jesus is the true innocent kid. He is the goat that went into the wilderness, and he is the goat that laid down its life. 1 Peter 1.18 says this, For you know that it is not with perishable things like silver or gold that you have been ransomed from the worthless way of life handed down by your ancestors. The worthless way of life. He's talking to Jews. <laughs> your worthless way of life from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Messiah, like that of a lamb without blemish or defect. He is the lamb without blemish or defect, and his sacrifice and his offering is completely satisfies God the Father. Now what they had was what we call atonement, or the covering of sin. That is not what we have. I know we sing it, and it's a good picture, and that's really what Holcott wants us to understand. He wants us to get the pictures because he wants us to get the reality and the truth. Our sins are not covered. Our sins are removed. Okay, it is the goat going into the wilderness that he wants us to see. Our sins are removed. <laughs> that's the picture. What we have is so much greater than what they had. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4 says this, For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, the old ones, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, these Old Testament rituals were the way that they could understand and have by faith salvation. They had to have faith in what they were doing. They had to have faith that the goat really took away their sins. God says it was all on credit. <laughs> they didn't have the new creation. They didn't have the new birth. They didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. They didn't have heaven inside. But they still had relationship, and they could live in God's favor and blessing by faith in what they did. The goat that was led into the desert was a picture of their sins being borne away from them. God wanted them to know that he would treat them just as if their sins had been completely removed. And that because innocent blood covered their sins, even though they were guilty, they would go free. And their sins would not be counted against them. It took an innocent blood to cover sin, to atone for sin. It took the innocent to redeem the guilty. Once the blood was applied to the mercy seat, the guilt of their sins was considered to be removed from them. And God wanted them to see themselves as completely free from all the sins of the past year. You see, when they saw that the crimson ribbon had turned white, they could rest one day a year. They could rest in the knowledge that their sins were not counted against them. They could believe that nothing was being held against them, that they didn't have to work to make God happy that one day. <laughs> I love the fact that you see all of the pictures, you see all the pointing, and you see how far short it falls. God would write their name in his book for a year, but we have a Lamb's book, and it's written in there for eternity. 
Through all of these rituals, we can see the shadows of what Jesus did on the cross. But what Jesus did is far superior to what those rituals provided. Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of the innocent kid, the innocent goat whose sinless blood was poured out not just for Israel, but for all mankind. Jesus is also the fulfillment of the scapegoat who visibly bore away all sin. It was the live goat, the living goat, that bore the sins away so everyone could see. Jesus was killed publicly, very publicly, so everyone could see. It was the living kid with the crown of thorns who bore the sins away on the cross of Calvary from 9 a.m., the first lamb, until 3 p.m., the last lamb. The goat, the living goat, hung on the cross, the living sacrifice was bearing away all the sins of mankind. Isaiah 53, verse 4 and 5 says this, Surely, absolutely, positively, without a shadow of a doubt, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. But Jesus did more than just bearing them away, the sins that we've committed. Jesus didn't come to just cover what we've done. He came to overcome sin itself. Jesus went to the cross because he was convicted of blasphemy and treason. The Jews convicted him of blasphemy, and the Gentiles convicted him of treason, even though they didn't want to. (laughs) In Matthew 26, we find these words, starting with verse 63. And the high priest said to him, to Jesus, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said unto him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have heard now his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. Now the Jews had a problem though, because they weren't allowed to put anybody to death. (laughs) <laughs> so they had to send him to a Gentile court. They had to get the Gentile court to also declare him guilty of something that was punishable by death. Guess what that was? Treason. John chapter 19, verses 12 and 13 says this. This is Jesus before Pilate. From thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him. He knew he was innocent. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth, and he sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, and he said unto the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said unto them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So according to human courts, Jesus was condemned to die for the sins of blasphemy and treason. But was Jesus actually guilty of either of those things? No, of course not. He was and is the rightful king of the Jews, and he was and is still the son of the living God. Those were not his sins, those were ours. Aren't those the original sins? Isn't that what Adam and Eve were truly guilty of? Blasphemy and treason? Did they want not to be as God? To make themselves as God? Blasphemy, if you're not. (laughs) did they not want to be king over their own lives and follow their own rules yes Jesus was condemned for the sins 
of mankind because all sin comes out of those two things, making yourself God and wanting to be your own king. Jesus was completely innocent, but he chose to take on himself the guilt and the sin of all mankind, not just the sins for one year, but the sins of all time, beginning and the end. When Adam and Eve sinned, they came under the curse, the curse of the law of sin and death, and they were ever so able to pass it on to all of us. <laughs> but that's what he came to overcome, not just the things we've done, the power of sin itself. Jesus came to bear the curse of the law of sin and death. He came to redeem us out of, from under the power of sin and death by becoming a curse for us. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Isn't it interesting that the only thing Jesus was wearing on the cross that day was a crown of thorns? He was considered cursed because of how he died. But God was also painting a picture. God loved to paint picture, pictures so that we can grasp the truth and the reality. Just as the live goat was visible, a visible representation of all the sins of Israel being removed from them. So the crown of thorns is a visible representation that Jesus bore the curse of the law of sin and death on his body that day. By his death, both sin and death are defeated. By his one sacrifice, his completely sufficient sacrifice, all of our enemies were defeated. In Hebrews 10, starting with verse 12, it says this, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, a single sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, and I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. He said one sacrifice was sufficient for all sin. On the cross, God the Father made Jesus to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Jesus is our all-sufficient sacrifice. He is our Passover lamb in that he brought us a complete deliverance from the power of sin and the kingdom of darkness. But he is also our day of atonement kids. He is the innocent kid whose blood was poured out that is placed in the heavenly holy of holies. And he is the live kid who bore our sins away from us. And his crown of thorn cries from the cross, the curse is gone. I took it with me to the grave. The curse is gone. It has no right, no power in your life. The curse is gone. Now, Jesus is the reason we can truly rest and rejoice in the knowledge that our sins have been removed far from us. He is the reason our Father is pleased with us. He is the reason our names are written in the eternal Lamb's book of life, not for a year, but for eternity. <laughs> His sacrifice brought an eternal and complete salvation for whosoever will. Because of Jesus, God our Father has brought all of mankind into right relationship with himself. God has reconciled the world back to himself. But he asks that in order to participate in this, you have to have that communion. It's only available by communion. You have to receive. You have to partake. You have to have him. 
And he says, when you join together, rejoice, celebrate the true Passover, the kid with the crown of thorns. We have reason to rejoice. We have reason to be happy. Our Father is well pleased with us because he is well pleased with the sacrifice. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is sufficient. Your truth is sufficient. Your sacrifice is sufficient. We thank you, Father God, for the pictures. We thank you that you let us look into the fuzzy pictures of the past and see you were always compassionate. You were always loving. You were always kind. You were always great in mercy. If we would only see. Father God, I ask you continue to open our eyes to the truth that one sacrifice, the sacrifice, is all that you require. And that when we partake of the one true and living sacrifice, we partake of you. Father God, we thank you that we can look at the cross and see the only thing you were wearing that day was thorns. The only thing you took with you to the grave was the curse with all of its sin and all of its power. You have completely defeated all the power of the enemy. And Father God, we believe we receive that truth into our hearts and into our lives. We honor you. We honor you. We love you. We worship you. We receive you. And we give ourselves to you in thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.